If you have your Bibles with you, please take them and turn to the book of Hebrews. And I'll be uh, reading the entire first chapter. Hebrews chapter 1. Got it? It's right at the beginning. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. And Lord, we acknowledge that it is only by your grace and by your spirit working in our hearts and our minds that we can understand anything from you. So, Lord, we seek your face and your help at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you recall we were looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 previously, when I had the opportunity to speak with you. So I'd like to just go back and look a little bit at where we've been to this point. It was a while ago. Revelation was partial and sporadic 
before Jesus. That's what we saw last time. He spoke to the fathers. He spoke to the prophets. But it was always at specific times and specific places. And it was sporadic. There were times when the word of God was rare. And then the author tells us he spoke to us in son. He spoke to us in Christ. And we came into a new era. Revelation is complete. It has reached its zenith. There is no more to be said. And he took, gave us seven statements about Jesus. Heir of all things, he created everything. He is the brightness of God's glory. He is the exact image of his person. He upholds everything by his word and by himself. He purged our sins and he sat down. The job is done. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And something we need to be reminded of, I think, quite often, Jesus' accomplishments are only possible because he is fully God. Jesus does only the things that only God can do. God can't a man can't do those things unless he is God. And Jesus is God. He has a unique relationship with the Father. And I just wanted to turn briefly to the Gospel of John and just bring that point out more fully. Gospel, chap uh, Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 19 to 23. I'm waiting for you to turn to it, and my Bible is not automatically going there. <laughs> then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the, the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may, be, may marvel. For as the Father raises the, up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom he will. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Father and the Son are worthy of the same honor. They are both in the Godhead worthy of our praise and our worship. So those are some of the things that uh, we talked about in verses from one, verses 1 to 3. I think I'm bringing out some things probably that I didn't talk about last time, but I just wanted to uh, emphasize those points. Now, we also saw that uh, there's a difference in the eras. We talked about the fact that there was a transition to the last days. We're in the last days. And I just wanted to ask this question. What happens in the valley of the last days? What happens now that Jesus' revelation has been complete and we have no more revelation necessary? What do we do now? 
Do you recall uh, what Jesus said just before he was leaving? He said in uh, John chapter 16, he was talking to the disciples and he said, it is expedient for you that I go away. Jesus is telling us that it's better, it's better now. But perhaps we want to hang on to some of those old ways. We'd rather have some kind of new direct revelation. But there is no new direct revelation that we need. It is complete in Jesus Christ. The exact image of God has been revealed in him. We have now the spirit working in our lives for anyone that has trusted in Christ has the spirit. Romans 8, 9 to 11. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. The believer has the spirit living in his heart, in his soul, in his mind, and he quickens us. He makes us alive. He makes us alive to the word. That's how we know Jesus today. We find him in the word. I recall, it's a few years ago now, when I was in university, and I took uh, some classes in uh, Near Eastern Studies, and we were looking at the history of the ancient East. They call it the Near Eastern Studies, what we call normally the layman calls it the Middle East. It was about, you know, Israel, the Levant, and all those things. And after three months, at the last class, the professor came out and said, this is all we have, and he held up a piece of pottery. This is all we really have. And I'm like, so you've been talking about all this stuff that's going on for three months, and all we really have is a piece of pottery? And there is a sense where in history, that is all we really have until somebody writes it down. And God has written it down. He's written it in his word, and we all have it. We all have access to it. It's more ubiquitous now than any time in history. You can carry it around with you in your, on your phone. You can access it over many different ways. God's word is everywhere available. And there is no new revelation required for you to have a relationship with him. In fact, in the word of God, you will find everything you need for life and godliness. And in the word, you will find the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. As the writer of Hebrews will tell us later, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents 
of the heart. Through the study of God's word, sometimes it might seem a little mundane, but be assured the spirit of God works through it. And if you spend time in it and you meditate on it, you will be changed and you will be made new. Being born again, not of corruptible seed. We already read this verse today. But of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. How can those words live? Because the spirit of God quickens them to us and makes them alive. So that's kind of where we've been. And I was making a little bit of application of where we were last time in the introduction of Hebrews verses 1 to 3. Now let's look forward and try to see where we're going. As one commentator puts it, the Holy Spirit was moving through the apostle to first make seven affirmations concerning the exalted dignity and dominion of Christ and then to confirm them from the scriptures. So the author of Hebrews is doing basically what we do when we try to uh, expound God's word. He has a subject. He makes an introduction. He brings out his points. Like we said, there's seven points that he brings out about Jesus Christ. And then he expands on them. And he uses texts to show what he's doing. And in his case, he didn't have the New Testament, so he goes to the Old. And he starts quoting from the Psalms, and mostly from the Psalms. And one of them, which is a bit odd, seems to come from Deuteronomy from the Septuagint version. Or it could also be from uh, Psalm 97. There's scholars argue back and forth on some of these things. And you'll also find as you read through the book of Hebrews that the subject of angels carries on even into the second chapter. If you flip over, you'll see that he's talking about that. Uh, where is that now? Basically, he's making a comparison between angels being uh, spiritual beings, but Jesus didn't become an angel. He's not concerned about the salvation of angels. He's concerned about the salvation of men, so he took on flesh. So he's, he's, the author's still going to talk about angels even into the second chapter, right to the very end. For verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He says in verse 16 of chapter 2. But don't worry, we're not getting anywhere near that far. <laughs> but I just wanted to show you that so that you, when you're reading through the book of Hebrews, you kind of see how the argument flows, that he's actually bringing out the difference between Jesus Christ and angels in different aspects of his relationship to what he's like and what angels are like. 
So let's uh, look at the text here in verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This is essentially a transition verse. He's brought out these statements about Christ. And now suddenly, like he hasn't mentioned angels before, then all of a sudden he says, being made so much better than the angels. I kind of argued with myself quite a bit over <laughs> what I was going to say here about the angels. Should I do a, a bit of a study of angels? And I kind of started doing that, and then I decided I don't want to do that because that's not really what the text is about. You know, like it mentions angels, but it doesn't really expound on angels. It just talks about Jesus. Because the angels don't have the same name as him. Philippians 2, 8 to 11 and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no one like Jesus Christ. There is no one who humbled himself and went to the cross for our sin. And there was no one who has been exalted like he has been exalted. There's no one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Only Jesus Christ is given that privilege. So what are the angels then? They're merely created beings given the job of worshiping the one who created him. Verse 6, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Kind of an interesting statement. We're not supposed to worship who are we supposed to worship? Anybody? Can we just worship whoever we want to worship? Well, the angels are greater than us. But they're given, well, one of their main jobs is just to worship God. And who's called God here? Worship him? He's there to worship Jesus Christ. So if Jesus wasn't God, then I guess God is telling them to worship someone who's not God. No other gods before me, the Lord commanded. Obviously, the Lord would not be breaking his own commandment by commanding Jesus or the angels to worship someone who isn't God. He's to worship, the angels are to worship Jesus because Jesus is God. 
In Revelation 19.10, it says this, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, See, thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Sometimes we have the tendency to want to worship spiritual beings, but they in of themselves, the angels, are to worship God. Let's not worship anything other than God himself and Jesus Christ, the God-man. Again, in Revelation, in chapter 5, verses 11 to 13, it says, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits on the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. What are the angels doing? They're carrying out the command given to them, and they're worshiping God. And who is God? The Lamb is the God. And who is the Lamb? Jesus Christ is the Lamb. If anybody ever tries to tell you that somehow Jesus is not God, he is blatantly going against Scripture. The angels are called to worship him. Who is worthy of worship? God and God alone. Jesus Christ is God. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. And we worship the Lamb with the angels like the hosts of heaven. And of the angels he saith, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? He made them. They're created. Of course, Jesus Christ is not created. He is the one who we saw in the introduction. He made everything. And the angels are like the wind, commanded by God. And we don't see them, we don't see the effect of the wind, and we often don't see the effect of angels. Though at times, of course, they revealed themselves to people. As we sang this morning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and that was one of those epochs in history, the most momentous moment in history, when Jesus came into the world and there was just like an explosion of angelic activity during that time. Like how many times did the angels come and announce things right at that time? Like if you were an angel, that was probably like your most favorite time. Oh, hey, we get to go and announce that Jesus is coming. And so what, an angel went to Zechariah, told him that John the Baptist was going to be born. An angel went to uh, Mary, told her that she was going to have Jesus 
Then an angel appeared to Joseph and warned him. No, not warned. Told him. I guess you could take it as a warning. Don't, don't dump Mary, right? <laughs> so the angel tells Joseph, you know, go ahead, marry her, and call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. And then, not that long after that, Joseph is warned again to uh, not stay in Bethlehem, but to flee because Herod is trying to kill Jesus. And there's, there's other examples, but the angelic activity at that time was feverish. And that makes sense because even in just the terms of their ministers, right, in the text, calls them ministers, which is like administrative people. So when the king has something really important to do, what happens to all the administrative people? They're like running all over back and forth, you know, except in, in heaven they're not running around like the government administrative people do. You know, the government people run around and do a lot of stuff, but they're just wrecking everything, right? But when God's administrative people, the angels, are doing things, they're following the exact plan that God has ordained since before the beginning of time, and they're instrumental in carrying it out. And like I said, I think particularly at the incarnation and at the resurrection, they are just filled with the joy of the Lord. And that's also borne out in the announcement that the heart the herald angels sing when they announce to the shepherds then all of a sudden a whole host of angels gathered together and started singing the praises of God. They just felt and knew the joy of the Lord being in his presence and knowing what was coming. They just joined together and I think spontaneously sang of the glory of God. Now, um, we mentioned that most of these quotes are from the Psalms. We read Psalm 9 this morning, and there's quotations from Psalm 2 and Psalm 45. And one of the things we need to keep in mind when we're looking at the Psalms is that a lot of times they're, uh, they're by a king, or about a king and some of the things that we typically do with the Psalms we kind of mutilate them a little bit because we want to find the, uh, the way we fit into the Psalm a lot of times we don't fit in Like there are applications for us but the message is about the king and who's the ultimate king? the one seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. Even in that psalm that we read, 
In Psalm 9, but the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment, and he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. And we look at uh, our text this morning, and we see, but unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. See the kind of king language? Jesus Christ is the authority, the one who holds the scepter, the symbol of power. If he holds it out to you in peace, then things are good. If he holds it out to you in judgment, things are not so good. But he has the power, he holds the scepter. And there's many things like that in the Psalms, which I'm just barely getting my mind around some of this stuff. And when I read some of these Psalms, it's like, okay, what is that about? But you know what? The, the author of Hebrews, in a sense, gives us permission to interpret this Bible a little bit differently than the literal historical method that we are sometimes tied to a little bit too tightly because the scriptures are all about Jesus Christ in the volume of the book it is written of me and Spurgeon was a master at this he, some of the things are like seem a little far off but he saw the pictures of Christ that we often just miss By the way, I wasn't saying, Herman, that you mutilated the psalm or anything like that. <laughs> I just was really encouraged that you read that psalm and that I saw that verse, which I had read it earlier, but then I kind of, uh, it slipped my mind until you read it again this morning. The psalms are so full of the pictures of Jesus Christ. And that's just something that... Hebrews emphasizes by bringing these things out because if you look at the Psalms outside of that, if you look at Psalm 45, let's just turn to Psalm 45. And he's quoting uh, verses uh, 6 and 7, but if you look at the Psalm as a whole, it doesn't seem like it would be about Jesus. It's actually just a Psalm about a, a king. And the king is being put in his uh, kingship, basically. He's receiving the kingship. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. So the psalmist is saying that uh, he's going to write something about the king now. And he's telling us that the king... In verse 2, you are fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into your lips. Therefore, God has blessed thee forever. So he's pronouncing the blessing on the king that God has given him. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall touch, teach thee terrible things. 
Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. And then we get to uh, the part that the author of Hebrews quotes. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now the, the king is being anointed, receiving the crown, so to speak. But there's something more going on too. Can the psalmist call an ordinary king, O God? Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever? Well, it's because the psalms are so often written by a king or written about a king, about the great king, the greater King David. And so when he says, O God, he's talking about the greater the greater king. And when you read through the Psalms, you'll find language that is hyperbolic, you know, above the ordinary. And when you see those kinds of things, I'm sure you already do this, but just as by way of reminder, those th extraordinary things are just a taste of the mind of God working through these circumstances in the, in the land of Israel through those particular kings and the ones who are writing these psalms showing that he is working providentially through the history of the people of Israel to prepare a way and a place for the arrival of Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons why you cannot divide the Old Testament from the new and pretend that somehow or other we just need the New Testament. We need the old to confirm that it is God who has done all this good work to reveal who he is and who Jesus Christ is. Verse 8, it tells us, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with, all, with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. <coughs> Jesus' regal authority is unique among all the rulers of this earth. I mentioned already that he holds the scepter, and it's a scepter of righteousness. Psalm 85.10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Righteousness and peace Jesus Christ holds those things in perfect balance in his scepter. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. As I've said multiple times, I think now, Jesus Christ is the only one worthy of that position. Jesus is the eternal creator and sustainer of the universe in contrast to a world that is running down. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old, as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. The universe is running down. They used to think, by they I mean secular scientists, that the universe was eternal. They wanted it to be eternal because if it was eternal, then they could just say, oh, the universe, universe has always been here. We don't have to worry about there being a God who is in control of things. We'll posit an eternal universe. But now those same secular scientists have uh, realized that things are running down. If they just would have read the Bible, they would have already known that. But I've actually, you've probably experienced this as well in your life. Once, well, if you're, you know, if you're past 39, you start to realize that, oh, back in that day, people said this. And then it's like, oh, now they say this. It's like, it's funny, I knew that already before because I was reading my Bible and it already said that. You know, so scientists come up with these things and God's word has already revealed many of, it, many of those things. There is a day coming when everything will be dismantled. First Peter puts it a little bit differently. He talks about the world burning up. Just a different metaphor that the Lord uses to show that he's the one in control and only he's the one who decides when things will be wound down. Jesus' name is above every other name. He is in a position of power at God's right hand. And he has many wonderful names. Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We can be confident of this fact that God is always at work as he has been through the history of the people of Israel and as he revealed as we just 
sort of scratched the surface on some of the things that are in the Psalms. God is always at work revealing himself to us through his word. If you don't know him today, take a Bible and start reading it every day and asking him to reveal himself to you. Respond to the things that are in his word. Take joy in the fact that God loves you and has given his son for your salvation. When Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross with a specific intent to show the love of God and the judgment of God to the world. If you have a Bible, he's offering you a personal message where you can discover that for yourself. And he wants you to take the Bible, to take his word, and discover the Lord Jesus Christ and to give your life to him from now until eternity. Because you have eternity. And he wants to give it to you to be with him. And you walk into his presence when you know him. He will extend the scepter as the king did to Esther and he will say, welcome into my kingdom. To know Jesus Christ is to know joy and to know the fullness of it.